if you're trying to build a company, especially at the highest level, um, with all of the different moving pieces, you're going to learn a lot about yourself, issues, questions that you've had, you've avoided confronting about yourself. Um, you know, you 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 have to deal with them and face them head on. Your your strengths and your weaknesses are, are are highlighted and brought to the fore for everyone to see, especially yourself. Welcome back to another season of Third Culture Africans. I'm proud to say Africa's number one award-winning career and entrepreneurship podcast voted for by you at the African Podcast and Voice Awards. I am Zezu Ariaki Sal, your host. I'm obsessed with all things entrepreneurship and our show is dedicated to igniting your entrepreneurial journey, sharing resources and giving you the tools to pursue your dreams fearlessly. We celebrate artistry and stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed. Inspiring, motivating, and full of wonder, discover how those who succeed do it. Your support helps make this show bigger and better. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and join our community with weekly newsletters curated just for you. Let's connect on Instagram and Facebook at Third Culture Africans. Sit back, relax, and let's do this. Hi, Kennedy. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Hi. Um, it's really great to be here. I got your um, profile uh, through uh, someone on your team. Um, and oftentimes, uh, for most guests on the show, I feel like I already know them. Um, but it's incredible what you've been able to achieve in your career. And I guess being one of Africa's uh, stroke Nigeria's uh, unicorns in terms of fintech, I tend to sort of do an intro for each guest um, on, on, on the episodes. But I think you probably would do your introduction better justice than I would because I've seen how great a speaker you are and so I guess if you can tell everyone listening a little bit more about you and what you're known for and what you're hoping to actually achieve by your current endeavors. For sure, um, really great to be here again. My name is Kennedy Ikezie, I'm, I'm 24 years old, I was born and raised in Nigeria um, today, I'm the CEO of Kipa. Kipa is a financial technology company um, regulated by the Central Bank of Nigeria that's providing um, digital accounting and payment software for small businesses across Nigeria. Um, since our inception over two years ago, a little under two years ago, um, more than 500,000 businesses have used our product. Um, before, before Kipa, I lived and worked in Beijing for... For two years, um, I um, right before I left Beijing was on the um, founding team for the Africa business at TikTok um, and handling user growth and acquisition for um, the product expansion into Africa, specifically focused on three countries, Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa. Um, before TikTok, I started my career. My first job out, out of college was um, at a management consulting firm called Accenture. Accenture worked on projects locally for the federal government and for um, multinational um, and other private organizations um, in Nigeria. I 
my parents are university professors, so I spent um, you know most of my time with them growing up on a university campus. Um, I have four siblings today. Um, a lot of my who I am today was shaped by my interactions with with my siblings growing up. Um, I still work with my brother. He's my co-founder at the company and he's the president at Skipper. Um, and the goal for us with what we're building and the way I think about my my personal North Star, um, I think about it as engineering economic prosperity for Africa. Um, I think that is the foundational lever that needs to be pulled um, that will change the narrative around a lot of conversations that we have. But I think um, you know, economic prosperity is the bane of a lot of the problems that we experience as a continent today, even for those who are abroad. And um, I think it's my life's mission to chip away at that problem. Incredible. Uh, you missed a few things uh, in your wonderful intro, though. I'm sure. I'm sure. You I missed did. a few. So let me just help you because, you know, got to give you your flowers. <laughs> so you've been recognized with uh, a few awards uh, in, in your tenure and in entrepreneurship. Um, so as a young African leader um, under President Barack Obama, um, as well as the Queen's Young Leader Award from uh, the late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, at one point you were ranked the highest competitive debater in Nigeria. Yeah, for two years in a row. How did that come about? So I, I went to university um, in Nigeria. I went to University of Calabar, where my parents also teach. Um, and all through my four years at University of Calabar, I competed. I was a competitive debater. Um, and by, you know, by far and large, the University of Calabar was, had the most significant investment by any Nigerian university in debate. We treated it like a sport. Um, and we, we, we had a very robust and competitive team. Um, and what that meant was we got to compete every year with um, the best and brightest students from universities across the country. Um, so every summer we, um, you know, we, we assembled our teams and, you know, it was competition with about 250 to 400 other students um, who represent the best and brightest students from their universities. Um, and at the end of those tournaments, there's, you know, from every, so what it looks like is you go through nine different, different debate rounds um, where you get to compete. Um, in micro rounds, there's a quarterfinal, a semifinal, and a final. At the end of this, like every speech you do um, is ranked by the judges. Um, and so what that means, what it means to be the best debater is I, um, out of all the students, between 250 and 400 students, um, I was ranked number one. So accumulated the most number of um, um, highest scores um, across the entire, which is no mean feat, um, for sure. I can imagine. I guess now you see why I let you do your own introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're quite young. And a few questions um, that I'm sure everyone wants to know about. Uh, but before we, we sort of jump into those questions, um, you went to university to study philosophy. Uh, how does a philosophy graduate go ahead and start up um, one of Nigeria's successful fintech businesses? Yeah, um, I think it's something people tend to misunderstand, right? Like that, you know, there needs to be a direct correlation between what you study and 
you know, what you eventually go on to do. And for me, I think of what you study um, as having an impact on who you become. And for me, what that was, was philosophy allowed me to think from first principles. Um, it also provided a mirror for very significant self-examination. And I think that's the way I like to learn and the way I like to study. When I read a book, for example, I don't just read the words and the letters and, um, you know, enjoy the story and the narrative. Um, it's what aspects of me are reflected here. And that's why I really like, you know, to read like history and watch documentaries. What aspect of me um, is, 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 is present in the literature I'm reading? Um, and how can I, as a result of that reflection, become a better person? I mean, I think studying philosophy for four years definitely um, made me much better. I felt like it was, it was also an unfair advantage because as a debater, I felt like everything I learned in class, all of the books I had to read, like very directly had a consequence on my ability to be a very good debater. So I think that was my kind of unfair advantage. Um, you know, I'm post that, um, I think combining studying philosophy with um, you know, like being a debater with working on a social enterprise, it helped me gain both, you know, real world experience, the theoretical experience that I think is necessary for anyone to go on and do anything, you know, that can be successful, um, you know, debating and competing with the best students from not just Nigeria, but across the world. I competed at Harvard, competed against students from Yale, Stanford, the best schools across the world, um, helped develop that sort of emotional and cultural quotient that I think is necessary to navigate um, cross-cultural communication, um, which I think is necessary for when you're building a company and you have to interact with stakeholders from different backgrounds, different cultures, different countries, um, and kind of teach them and be their introduction to what it means to um, you know, do business in Africa. Um, so for me, I think philosophy gave me everything I need and made me, um, you know, was a significant tr contributor to who I eventually became. Amazing. So you finished philosophy. I, I, I think I would love to sort of chart an understanding of how you ended up at Kippa. So you finished university. What did you do next? Like, at what point did you know you wanted to go into, because you went from management consultancy, which is Accenture, into TikTok and growth, and then into Kippa. So at each of those stages, what did you know about what you wanted in your career and what influenced you to make those steps or take those steps? Yeah. I mean, it would be tempting to present a picture um, that's very linear. Right. Um, that was like there was absence of clarity at many points in my journey, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse to be someone who potentially can do many things and have alternatives. So like, I know I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. But what would be the best way for me to spend the next 10 years of my life? Um, and so the, the mental model I fell back to as a competitive debate, that was where are the smartest people who I respect, admire and I'm jealous of? Where are they competing today? Like, are they working at law firms? Are they, um, you know, studying for PhDs? And what I realized was <clears throat> a ton of them were building companies um, or at least trying to build companies. And these were people I respected. And I'm like, okay, if the best, smartest people who I think so highly of um, are betting their lives and are competing, you know, in this field, I want to throw my hat in the ring. And that's, that's exactly, you know, kind of what led me um, and my brother, by the way, um, to, to start a company. But it was not obvious. Um, when I moved to Beijing initially for grad school, 
Um, I thought I was going to leave grad school and go into like a top tier consulting firm in the US. Um, so it wasn't obvious and it wasn't obvious until the last six months of grad school that I knew I was going to go on to build a company. And um, my brother was also a very big influence in that regard. Incredible. So you went in and then what was it like raising? So at first you guys raised, I guess, publicly what we know about. You were able to raise 3.2 million US dollars in 2021. Now, I'm sure the question on everyone's lips as they're listening is, how on earth do you raise money um, with just an idea? Um, and also, where do you go to raise 3.2 million to really kick off an idea like HIPAA? Yeah, so firstly, it wasn't without an idea. It wasn't um, just an idea, right? We um, had built a product. We had um, onboarded users. Um, it was an infinitesimal number, around 500 onboarded businesses. Um, but we had a very huge wait list of businesses waiting to sign up on the product. Um, and we, you know, that was kind of all we needed for to validate that what we were doing. There were so many other, like, you know, points that we, of traction that we, that we developed. We spent time, you know, building partnerships with merchant associations, um, you know, offline merchant associations. So all of that work went in before, um, you know, we, we brought more like external capital on board. Um, and to answer your second question for where did people go to raise capital? Um, from my experience, and this is what I thought before I became a founder that, oh, like you need to go, you, there's somewhere where you go. From my experience, the job of an investor is to invest. So when they wake up in the morning, all they have to do is to find good companies and try to get money across to them. Um, so, and I know this because I, you know, we tinkered around, worked on a few things, but when we started working on something that had significant market traction, investors found their way to us. So investors will find you. Don't try to spend too much time finding them, um, especially if you're, um, and you, it's almost like a, a barometer for whether or not the business you're building is one that is venture backable. Um, and be, be, to be very careful, I did not say it's successful or will be successful, but venture backable, because I think they are venture backable businesses and they are not, has nothing to do with whether or not they'll be successful, um, is whether or not you're getting that early bite from, um, from investors. So their job is to find you um, as an early stage founder. And every single founder will tell you this. Um, for most people, um, they, they, they had investors come to them during the earlier stages when they started to build a good business. You mentioned that the investors find you. What what things did you do to be found? Um, so we spent time, we spent a lot of time talking to um, other founders. So one of the things before we started building Kipa is we made a list of companies that were building, much more advanced companies that were building in other emerging markets. We cold emailed the founders, executives at these companies. We got on the phone with them. We asked them deep, meaningful questions. And what we realized was when a founder who has been backed by an investor meets someone who is, you know, who they think is exciting, what they do is they make an introduction. You do not even know, right? For example, we had um, someone who we spoke to back channel to an investor like, look, I just spoke to these guys from Nigeria. What they're building seems to be really cool. This is their email. Please reach out to them and learn more. And, you know, so I think in many ways, those conversations that we had as part of our market research process opened the doors for us to start to get investor attention and for them to come to us. Um, so, yeah. There seems to be 
a great disconnect or even a disparity between um, what people believe they should have achieved to be able to raise funding and what actually influences your ability to raise um, funding to kick off um, an idea. What three things do you feel in your experience now having been through the process not once but twice and getting to the point where you've raised 12 million US dollars, um, what three things do you feel are most important to then make yourself uh, venture backable and venture backable being venture capitalist, uh, venture capital from, you know, initial seed investors or angel investors, etc. Yeah, the most important thing I think um, investors look out for and have to wait to that discount is the founder. Do I believe that this founder is someone who is valuable? Um, and it boils down to very simple things. Do they have knowledge about the market? Can they hire great people? Can they convince other investors to come on board? Um, are they intelligent? You know, very simple, basic things that anyone will look out for, right? So that's what the founder is. Second is the market. So if the founder is great, is the market, the market they're building in, or can the market they're building in power a billion dollar business because that's usually the um, you know the nominal benchmark for, for investors can we you know, can this founder build a billion dollar business and can the market accommodate that so if you're building for a very tiny slim market um, you know no matter how great you are no matter how great your product is it naturally places a cap on how much you can grow um, so that's the second thing the market um, and the third thing um, for me it's a it's a, it's a non-obvious third thing um, but I'll say it is the, the, the thesis of the fund that you're trying to approach that's talking to you. For example, there are very specific funds that only invest during the idea stage. There are some that only invest when you have product and some traction. There are some that only invest after you have revenue. There are some that only invest after you have a certain revenue milestone. Right? We only invest after you have $10 million in revenue and close that. So those tend to be growth stage investors. So it's not a good use of your time as an early stage startup um, to be talking to a growth stage investor. It will be a good conversation, but nothing will ever come out of it because they can just not just invest in you. No matter how much they like you, um, if your stage of the company is not the right fit for their business, then they are not going to give you money. Um, yeah. So those are the things that I would say. Incredible. Now, statistically, uh, a country like Nigeria, which is where Kippa, you know, is is from, um, you know, there's only about, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population that uses a smartphone. Um, and there's a lot of talk around, you know, what what is the viability of fintech in Africa as a whole? Um, but specifically in somewhere like Nigeria, where the stats say, you know, there's only about 10 to 20 percent of the population. And we start to look at your numbers and start to look at potential growth just from a simple mathematical uh, calculation based on the number of mobile subscriptions, etc. What was that like um, starting Kippa in the face of some of these statistics to people's market perception um, and three, you know, the infrastructure challenges. Cause I think for most people who have ambitions as big as, as, as big as yours, where, you know, you and your brother looked at Kippa and felt like this was ripe for the market. Um, what, what sort of 
challenges came to play that perhaps you hadn't considered. Are these statistics actually true? Um, because there's always, you know, a, a variation in in what actually the research is that's widely available online. And especially when you're looking at foreign investors, um, that's the only information they have available. So I, I've asked several questions, but if you, if you can um, perhaps tackle them as best as you can. Yeah, um, so I, I didn't see that research. I think it was published by, uh, by some research, but I don't remember the name. Um, the idea that one to two out of every 10 people in Nigeria is a smartphone is false. Like, I think everyone who has actually spent time in Nigeria knows how true that is. Um, that number should be somewhere around 60%. Um, again, because the, I, I, I very deeply question their, um, you know, their research methodology. Um, but yeah, so firstly, I think that number is just wrong. Um, but beyond that, what we've seen is the, the compounded, I think the number we probably should be looking at is what's the compounded annual growth rate, right, for smartphone penetration um, and internet penetration alongside, right? And over the past five years, it's gotten better. Um, it's, it's, it's gotten cheaper to acquire smartphones. Um, you know, the price of data is falling drastically um, by almost 100% every year, like, you know, the availability of data um, to, to people in the, even in the most remote areas. Um, internet coverage is, is, is growing pretty rapidly. And this is not to spread a you know, an overtly and naively positive image of what that is. Um, but I think um, the, the growth potential on the continent is one that is unrivaled, um, right? Um, however, I still think that there are imminent challenges. Um, in many ways, it's a very poor country. Um, you know, less than less than 2% of the population um, ends more than $300 a month. So it's it's a very poor population and a lot of innovation that we expect to see um, and that we need to see is to focus on how we enable people to create wealth. Um, and for us, it's at the core of our thesis at Kipa, right? We know for sure that for most small business owners, what wakes them up every morning is they want to, they need to make more money and they need to turn that money into long-term work. They need to, they want to, you know, climb from, from one rung of the social economy ladder to the next. Uh, and doing their business and being diligent at it is part and parcel of that process. And for us, our goal is to support them to enable that world creation. Um, so I do think um, financial technology is necessary. Um, and the, the innovations we've seen in the past 10 years on the continent have been a, um, have been a net positive. Um, and I do expect that we see more of that um, in, in the coming years for sure. You mentioned earlier that... Um you know, there are different kinds of investors, um, depending on what stage in your business building that you're at. Now, you know, and, and not to age myself in any way, um, but there are entrepreneurs um, like me who were from a time where, you know, raising large amounts of money externally wasn't a thing that we did. And it wasn't as widely available purely because the world is so much more connected now than it was, you know, uh, 15, 20 years ago. Main question here is, 
do you need to raise funds to make a business successful? Um, absolutely not. And um, I'll advise folks to be really thoughtful about whether or not they need to raise money. And of course, it's very hypocritical for me to say, um, you know, after after raising money. Um, but I do think people should spend time, one, understanding what sort of business that they, that their personality um, is built to. Building a venture-backed business is not rosy, right? Um, and if you care about things like balance, especially the early days, right? Like work-life balance and, you know, then you probably want to think deeply about that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are people who who are able to manage it and, you know, God bless them. Um, but it's, 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 not as, it's not really rosy. So you have to figure out what your um, personality is built to accommodate. And you also have to figure out, and I think, that level of self-awareness for whether or not your business is venture valuable is super important. So um, venture capitalists are money managers. They manage money on behalf of other people. So very wealthy people, institutions, foundations, endowments, give venture capitalist funds to deploy on their behalf and make them a return. Most times venture capitalists lose money, um, but the one or two or three or five times they make money um, out of an investment in like 100 companies, the three to five companies that will succeed make up for the 95 companies that fail. Um, so that's kind of how, you know, it's high risk, high reward um, in many ways for, for venture capitalists. And you have to think from the perspective of them, how do you see your company fitting into their portfolio constructs? Do you think you're a company that has the potential? I remember the earlier things I mentioned, founder, you know, market, stage of fund, and I mean the other things like the team, the products, and all of, all of that, right? Are you a company that potentially in the next five years can become a brilliant dollar company? Um, and that's just something to, to think about. The time matters because they have to return their fund in five years, um, and the scale of, of the return also matters. For most people, they raise funds, right? Either to increase their revenue or to recruit more talent. Um, or to be able to be in control of sort of their marketing, lobbying, um, and in some ways also to spend less time persuading um, potential investors, right? Or building out, you know, their what the rewards along their customer uh, base, or in some cases just to con- get a control of um, their company. And you mentioned the pitfalls of raising external funding. Um, and I guess without stating the obvious, the one thing that you you kind of said it was, you know, the hours you put in, et cetera. But it's it's more than that. Right. It's it's being it's having a boss. Right. Depending on how much you give of your company to an investor, um, it's losing some level of autonomy because now you have to answer to a business plan or to answer to your investors who are expecting a certain return profile. Um, Do you mind sharing perhaps some of your learnings from being in a position where the structure of your business is now beyond you as the visionary, um, but you as a visionary in and amongst investors who are, who have expectations of the business 
um, and of you, the you and your brother, the founders? Well, yeah, um, that's a very critical element of having other stakeholders. And it really pushes what your relationship with authority is, right? Um, a lot of investors, no investor will know more about your business than you do. No investor would be able to make decisions for what's right for the business than you. Um, of course, you have to get investor buying. You have to get your, the buying of your board and your team. Um, and I think that capacity for communication is one that is important. Um, so how you do things matter. But at the end of the day, decision-making and the responsibility for the success or failure of those decisions are on you. Um, you're not going to succeed because you have a very fancy investor who tells you what to do. You're not, if anything, it's probably going to, you know, achieve the opposite of that. You mentioned um, raising money and you reaching out to people and your cold calls, etc. cetera. Um, I, I think one of the things people tend to underestimate is that raising money is a full-time job in itself and it costs money to actually raise money. Do you mind sort of speaking on your experience of the costs of raising money and the time it takes to raise money? Because I think we read the headlines, right? But no one is aware of exactly what the opportunity costs are. Yeah, um, for sure. It takes it takes a it's it's probably one of the most emotionally difficult things you do. Because as everyone who has raised money knows, knows, you get a lot of people tell you no. You you get very conflicting feedback, unsolicited opinion about the direction of your business. But you just have to understand that that's part of the course. Um, any fundraising round takes anywhere from, you know, one to six months. Sometimes it even takes longer than that um, before they close. And it's this constant grueling process of, and what's worse is you do not know how it will go until the last minute. So you can be in a process for three months and at the end of that, it doesn't go through. But you've just spent three months that you otherwise would spend focusing your energy exclusively on building your company, trying to fundraise. Um, yeah. Everyone's talking about, you know, the perfect pitch. I think since Steve Jobs made pitching a thing, you know, you go on Google and, and there are, um, you know, you can access Facebook's pitch. Um, you know, because everyone believes that because Facebook is the success that it is, their pitch is what was the was the variable that made that possible. How important is that pitch in the process? Um, it's very important, you know. Um, of course, like I think it's off-putting when people are, are overly theatrical and sound too like rehearsed and crammed. Um, and it's very um, impersonal. Um, but practicing your pitch, understanding and tailoring it for every investor is very important. Um, so that means doing your homework on what investor you're talking to in advance and tailoring. So what are they interested in? Are they more interested in product? You know, I met an investor who's like, I'm like our, the, our fund is really excited about the potential of data. So of course that pitch is going to be, look, this is, all of the potential that our platform has from a data perspective and going ready with, armed with that. Um, because delivering a generic pitch, it's so easy. Investors are here, you know, hundreds of pitches every month. Um, so they can tell 
a rehearsed generic pitch from one that is bespoke to them. Um, so I think that's important. Um, and it's important not just because the pitch is flowery and they want to hear like a 15-minute flowery speech, but it just shows that you, you're someone who is intelligent, thoughtful, um, and, and patient enough to prepare for, for the things that you need to do. Kipper is designed for small businesses. Um, you could have designed a business for, you know, larger corporates um, in a market like Nigeria who have more stability. Was there a particular reason why you chose small businesses? Um, absolutely. Small businesses transact 60% of the GDP. They um, employ 80, 84% of um, you know, the entire labor force, 96% of all businesses in Nigeria are small businesses. So, um, and no one has built for them. So we think there's one, a lot of deep, um, you know, meaning um, with building for them, um, you know, accelerating the transformation of the of the economy would happen when small businesses are catered to. Um, and we already think big corporates have enough people serving them, to be honest. Um, and, they're they're not going to fail. Neither their revenue is going to drop if you know, like more companies do not build for them. Um, but small businesses traditionally have been laggards when it comes to the adoption of tools, systems, processes that help them grow, um, and that's why we exist. Amazing. What would you say your greatest learning has been in? You know, you've been able to achieve an incredible amount in a very short space of time. What would some of your greatest learnings be? The biggest lesson for me is this has been as much of an emotional journey as it has been one where I'm building a business and trying to generate financial outcome, right? What that means is a lot of, if you're trying to build a company, especially at the highest level um, with all of the different moving pieces, you're going to learn a lot about yourself, issues, questions that you've had, you've avoided confronting about yourself. Um, you know, you, you, you have to deal with them and face them head on. Your, your strengths and your weaknesses are, are, are highlighted and brought to the fore for everyone to see, especially yourself. That has, that has definitely been my biggest learning, um, that in order for you to succeed, um, you, have to, you have to do some house cleaning, for sure. Mm. Mm. You mentioned both your parents are university professionals, so academia. How did they take you wanting to create a business, right? So, you know, for most African parents, they want their children in a stable job with a stable, <laughs> with a stable prospect of a future. How did that conversation go with your, your parents around you leaving you know, somewhere like TikTok, where there was a lot of growth and prospect, or even Accenture to, to say that not just you, but you and your brother were breaking away to start a business. Yeah, no, my parents have always trusted me from a very young age, especially to make decisions. Um, and I, I think that's one of the things I'm very blessed to have, like just incredible amount of belief from them. Right? They believe I would succeed. They believe that I would do well. Like if I tell them I am going to, you know, like, I don't know, like no matter what it is, think of the most ridiculous thing. They'll be like, I trust you. You'll be fine. Um, and having that level of belief um, and 
you know, really kind of puts me on my toes in the best way possible and makes me feel, um, you know, makes me feel very grounded. Mm. Has that been an important part of being able to sort of face the nose and, and, and the doors that get shut, shut in your face along the journey? Um, in some ways, um, I don't think it's directly being, being the reason why um, or a part of the reason why. Um, I think my ability to deal with that is just rooted in, look, like that's how, you know, it's the, it's the Matthew principle, right? Like you, most, most things tend to, or anything that is of value tends to skew towards the, um, you know, the tip of the tail. So I, um, it's like, okay, if I have to get through hundred no's, like the, the earlier I get to them, the better for me. So that's how I think of it. Um, yeah. And it's like, yeah, feeling like, you know, my building a relationship with failure in whatever form it manifests itself. Like failure is, I want to do something. I really wanted something. I couldn't get it. Um, so, and having, having to make peace with that is integral for anyone who will become successful. Um, and I'm trying to become successful. Um, and so making peace with that is incredibly important right now. Mm. You, you mentioned success. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned and also through each episode in the podcast is that for a lot of people, um, success is different. Um, what does success mean to you? Success is living my living very fully, living a meaningful life very fully without boundaries. Um, and I know I'm successful when I'm able to do that. Um, yeah, and pursuing whatever interest I want and creating whatever change um, I want to see in the world without boundaries. Um, that's success for me. Um, you know, of course, like, you know, in many ways, success for me is also being able to take care of my family. Um, very, very important to me um, and the people I love. Amazing. Uh, you, you mentioned a few of the influences to you and your brother starting uh, Kipper. But I would be keen to understand, where does the passion come from? It's one I, I think about a lot for myself too, right? Where does it come from? And even more philosophically, like, and more, like, it's like, how do we create more people who are very passionate about whatever it is they're interested in? And it's a question I ask myself a lot. Um, but I do think it's a combination of things. It's a combination of, um, you know, growing up in a country where there's quite a lot of challenges where you, by default, have to be above average to be fine, to be okay. Yeah. Um, I think there is, like, it, it does imbue you with a certain level of passion. Um, but at some point, that expires and it goes beyond that. You have to replace that with a different, um, you know, with a different set of motivations. Um, and for me, I think a lot of my passion today lies in my interest to play at the edge of my potential, right? It's like, I believe that everything that we do here, it is almost like, you know, God's potential manifesting itself at the most refined form. Um, and for me, it's like, how can I continue to refine my potential and sharpen it, um, to the point where I feel like I'm truly playing at the maximum limit of what it is I could be. Um, and that's why no matter how things good seem on the outside, um, if I feel like I'm not doing that, God, I feel very bad. Like I can have a bad month if I feel like in the past 30 days, I've not 
I've not done things that have allowed me to live, you know, to the limit of my potential. I've not worked as hard as I think I could. No matter how good that month went financially and on the books, it was a bad month for me. Yeah. 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 You're your own hardest critic, right? So I, I think, you know, being Nigerian and one of the things that I've learned about entrepreneurship over the years is that it can be a very lonely journey. Um, and there is a turning point in lifestyle um, being you don't have as much time as your friends who are in regular jobs do, um, where socially you get left behind or you're just no longer included because you can never make it. Um, your daily struggles are completely different to what your peers are going through. Um, and then you have the headlines, right, that come out, um, you know, raise 3.5 million, raise 12 million. Now, everybody thinks that money is in your bank account. <laughs> and so your life, your life should be so different. And you should be the guy who's paying for all the drinks. And, you know, <laughs> su success, success has arrived. Um, how are you different from the Kennedy who had no outside funding to the Kennedy who now has 12.1 million US dollars in his business that everybody knows about? Um, I think anyone who knows me would say I'm exactly still the same person. Um, you know, I, I don't think anything about me has changed. I, I mean, for a lot of founders, right, like the material difference in your life comes when you sell your company, you exit, you know, you IPO, um, and that hasn't happened for me. Um, so in many, like, in many ways, I'm still exactly the same person that I know. Um, my interests are still very similar. Um, I don't know that there's anything I do now that is different from things I've done before. Um, and I don't have that many friends, too, to be frank with you, right? I do have a lot of acquaintances, um, but I don't have that many friends. Um, so in terms of how it's affected my friendships, it's absolutely not um, still exactly the same thing. Um, you know, I, you know, where, when, and whenever, wherever I can like be valuable to people, I still try to be that. Maybe what has changed is I'm just a lot busier, so I'm more selfish with my time. Um, I think that that has changed for sure. What's the most common myth about your industry? Right. So everyone on the tips of their tongues is talking about the potential of fintech in Africa, especially Nigeria. What's the most common myth that you've encountered about your industry? Hmm, myth. Um, when I tell people, especially people not in the industry about my work, like it's like sounds very boring. Um, you know, it's just like okay, like why you seem like such an interesting guy. This is such boring work, but um, I, and I, I can and I can see what they mean. Um, but it's probably one of the more, most interesting things and building in this space um, you can do. There's a lot of support that exists in terms of like partners um, and infrastructure that you need to build. Um, so for me, it's just like, it's, it's a very exciting intellectual endeavor, you know, to, to walk through this maze for sure. So I think it's more and more exciting than people give it credit for. What keeps you up at night? More money, more problems, um, they say. <laughs> 
Well, a, a lot of what keeps me up at night it, it stems from you know the what I said earlier about dealing with your own like doing your own housekeeping, um, and you know a lot of times I'm up at night. Logically, I have no reason to be, um, but it, it stems from you know things like oh I am you know worried about something I did or haven't done that I want to do, um, you know, or just thinking about how I could have you know, handled specific scenarios, like, um, you know, interactions better. Um, but generally, right, it's very alienating and lonely being in a position of leadership. And I think that's something that's not talked about enough. Um, and Especially when you're young, when you're, when you're young yeah, doing it. Yeah, 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 it is. Most of it's, your peers are starting their careers in companies and they're the most junior person in a team. Um, and you're in your sort of early 20s and you're running a, a big business with, you know, 60 plus employees. You know, I started my first business um, in my 20s. Um, and I remember sort of hiring or even some of the dynamics with people you hire and staff. How have you navigated that? You mean, what do you do? You mean the, the, the age like different and managing that or just managing hires? The, well, the age difference. Um, so being in your twenties and and running a business. I don't. I don't. I, it's, it's from my experience so far, um, especially with managing people. That I that's that hasn't been a thing, right? So like when we're working, we're um, and it's also because we the culture on the team is one where we like every day I show up to work, I have to end my own shirt, right? I have to end my place. I have to end my position. You can't hack your way to being a chief executive by building a company and employing people. And like, no, like, um, I think organizations that are set up in such a way that the people at the top have to continue to fight to be at the top, um, they do the they do the best. Um, so um, that's that's the organization that Kipa is. And um, so for me, I understand that to be here. And in many ways, it's a chip on my shoulder in some way, right? Because I do know that there are people who think because you're young, like it's it's easy for them to chalk anything up to, oh, you're so young. You know, it's like everyone looks totally. for excuses for why, um, you know, oh, yeah, you're young. That's why you made this decision. It's like, totally. it's like that's not true. You're just yeah. looking, it's lazy thinking on, you know, on anyone's part. But um, so all of that to say it's, it's not been a factor um, that, like that comes up. It just I don't even see any any world in which it can possibly be, um, you know, when I when I work with people. So yeah. Amazing. How much of it has been mindset for you? Um a lot of it, I think I started to punch above my weight class from when I was very young. Yeah. And honestly, I like when I'm on my own, I don't think of like I don't think like, oh God, I'm 24. Like, wow, how cool is that? Or how young is that? Like, I don't know, like the way everyone probably feels, the way 60-year-old probably goes around the world just like not counting the, what their age. Like, I don't think, like, I think, of, you know, it's like I have, I've had all of this, you know, privileges, you know, um, I've had all of the, not privileges, but all of this opportunity, right? So the output from all of the opportunity, like this commensurate responsibility, and so for me, it's just living out the responsibility. I don't care if I'm 40 and I have that amount of responsibility on 24 and I have that. It's just you, you've, you've had this opportunity and there's a responsibility for you to turn that into something meaningful. Um, and that's just what I'm doing. So there's no without recourse to 
how young am I? How much of a victim am I? How much of a you know superhero am I? Like I don't really think of things on any of those extremes. Yeah, that it'll be, it'll be interesting um, having you on the show again in a decade from now. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> And I will ask you yeah. the exact same question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm very interested to see how my answers evolve after a decade. I'm like, I like, oh, Kennedy, you probably were naive. And, <laughs> but who knows? I think I, I, I think I will I will definitely um, look forward to asking you that question again in ten years time. Um, because I think life would have happened, right? Um, and, and the responsibility you carry now will be infinitely greater. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a part of ignorance being bliss, um, which is incredible to hear. Yeah, for sure. That's important. I, I, one of the things I also want to make sure I, I do not want to forget any aspect of what I'm going through or feeling right now. Um, that's very important to me. So, because I think there tends to be a glorification of the past. It's like, oh, you know, times were easy, times were good. And, you know, we, it's, it's, it's almost like nostalgia montages our experience and presents only the best version of it to us. And I really want to remember everything I'm going through right now, everything I'm feeling right now. So um, in the future, it's just a lot more clear um, in what ways I would draw the right. Mm. Well, you know, in in fairness, you and your brother are building a business with the backdrop of a narrative of the youth and the young population in Nigeria, right? So in so many ways, when you speak of responsibility, I I can understand where that comes from, right? The whole world saw NSARS, the whole world saw, you know, a, a president speak badly about, you know, the future of, of a country because they didn't believe in the youth. Um, the whole world has seen a generation of young Nigerians um, battling to be heard um, and to be seen and to be in a position where there are opportunities for them to be their best selves. Um, so when I think of you know, what your generation have had to live through, one, and two, um, perhaps in some ways, the gates that are open for your generation that perhaps weren't open for older generations. Um, you know, you guys have references of peers who are making, you know, who are successful in other endeavors, right? Creative cultural arts, you know, we have huge megastars as musicians who are your peers. You have so many other reference points than say, you know, the average African did 20 years ago. Um, the landscape is different, but it's not, it's not easy. Cause I think there are other challenges that, that you, your generation are facing, right. Um, where some of those things, the level of instability, say for instance, in education, um, across the continent has been incredibly challenging, I would say, in the last five years. You know, whether we're looking at, you know, the unrest that have happened, you know, even down to today in Sudan, right? Your your generation of Africans, while it seems that there are endless possibilities, you guys are having to navigate 
through some really challenging political climates. Saying that, what advice do you feel has been um, one of the best that you've received from a mentor or someone that you respect? Good question. I do think on, you know, on the climate and the challenges we have to face, I tend to err on the side of we, we have it, like we have it better than it's ever been. Um, you know, I don't think the political climate now is, is worse than it was in the 70s and Nigeria and the 80s. Like it's, in many ways, it's, it's gotten better but worse at the same time, right? Um, but for me, I tend to focus on things I can control and things that I really like for me versus um, you know, more grandiose versions of like how the system is set up um, negatively against me. So, a lot of the advice I've found very useful, um, you know, then to bother around or bother on me as an individual, as Kennedy, who's trying to do what I can to make my own mark um, in the world, right? And one of the most Beautiful piece of feedback I got from one of my members in 2019 was to take the most direct routes to my future, right? And that was in response to a um, you know, conversation I had with her about fear based decision making and some things I was afraid of. And I was going to make a decision because I was afraid. Um, and just to take a detour around it and, you know, it's like, no, take the most direct routes to your future. That thing you want to do in 10 years, um, just do it now, like let go of the fear, let go of all the, like be, and be open to failure, be more open to failure. Um, and I think that has and continues to, to, to drive my appetite for risk failure, uh, especially as a businessman. Um, and also just as an individual too, so, you know. I guess my last question would be, what do you wish you knew? What do I wish I knew? Um, so I'm not a technical father, and I feel, and I, I wish I, you know, deeply um, you knew how to write code, and that's something I'm actually starting to learn. So um, it's one that has been, it's not annoying, I've been annoyed at myself for it. Um, yeah, I get to start to, to, to keep away against that. Amazing. Uh, Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Where do people find you? Sure. Um, easiest, best place to find me is on Instagram. Uh, Kennedy, that's A to A. Kennedy, you know, I'll just spell that dot E K E Z N. And same name on LinkedIn, Kennedy, you can see on LinkedIn. Um, those are the best places to find me. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and I look forward to following your journey. His links are in the show notes. So get a link, go on, follow, like. He has an incredible newsletter where he shared some tidbits. So um, I will help you say kennedyakazia.com for those who are interested in his newsletter. And thank you again for tuning in on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. And we'll see you next week. Thank you to over 20,000 of you that have tuned in and have continued to tune in. Because of you, our show is now distributed on Vodacom Africa's platform, My Muse. Your support helps make this show bigger and better. If you're a fan of the show, we would love to know. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and join our community with weekly newsletters curated just for you. 
check out our free resources on entrepreneurship, productivity, finance, and leadership at thirdcultureafricans.com. You can now catch special episodes with video on YouTube at Third Culture Africans. Let's connect on Instagram and Facebook at Third Culture Africans. Let's do this. Let's do this.